Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. The California quail is a handsome, round, soccer ball of a bird with a rich gray breast, intricately scaled under underparts, and a curious forward drooping head plume. It's stiffly accented Chicago call is a common sound of the chaparral and other brushy areas of California and the Northwest. Often seen scratching at the ground in large groups or dashing forward in front of hunters on blurred legs, the California quail are common but unobtrusive. They flush to cover if scared, so approach them gently. That's from the Cornell Labs website. And that means we are going to round up, finish off our Western Quail series here on Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast with a deep dive into the California Valley Quail. And if you recall back to the biologist John Sherman, who we had on to break down scaled quail, uh, John and Al Iden, our Western Regional Rep, when we said, who's the biologist, the guy or the gal? The biologist who speaks to valley quail. Who's the first person that comes to mind? Monty Gregg is the name that came up over and over and over. And I'm really, really excited for this particular episode because I've had the opportunity to chat with Monty the last few minutes here before we hit record. And it, we're going to have a really fun conversation with a really interesting biologist about valley quail. But we're also able to talk to uh, Monty about the National Grasslands Program that, that exists out in the country. You know, there's 14 national grasslands across the United States representing 4 million acres. And Monty is a biologist with the U.S. Forest Service on the Crooked River National Grasslands in Oregon. So without further ado, Monty, welcome to On the Wing Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Bob. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, pretty flattered, you know, um, with John and Al kind of giving me props there. I, uh, I appreciate it. I'll, I, hope, I hope to do them proud. So we'll see how this turns <laughs> out, man. <laughs> So, so why do you think, so why do you think your name is the name that percolates to people's minds when they, when they bring up, Hey, I want a biologist that's just passionate about California Valley quail. Um, why, why is your name the name that pops up? You know, I, it, you know, kind of, I, I honestly don't know. I think part in part, you know, I'm, I'm pretty gregarious dude, I like people, you know, it's, I'm kind of, I tell people I'm kind of an anomaly from a biologist perspective and that like, um, and we just talked about this. I like to, you know, I like to build relationships with folks. I, I really like connecting with people. Um, partnerships are kind of one of the big things that I work on, um, uh, annually on, on my forest and grassland. And, um, I like, 
you know, so all these relationships, the connections that I've made, that I make through our partners are super important to getting our habitat work done. And so, um, so from, from that perspective, I, I think, um, you know, their, their, um, view of me because I'm such an extrovert, you know, and I, (laughs) you know, I love to share a hunting story, you know, like, like any other hunter does, you know? And so, um, um, just a lot, you know, like I say, I'm a, I'm a little bit on the hyper side. I think, I think that John knows that as well. I've, I've walked his legs off in the field before and stuff. So, um, but yeah, I get, I get out a lot, you know, I have a bird dog. And so, uh, um, yeah, I think he, I think John specifically, um, knows how passionate I am about upland bird hunting and stuff. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm really excited for this conversation. We're going to talk habitat of valley quail. We're going to talk about hunting valley quail. We're going to talk bird dogs. Um, and we're also, I, you know, this is a, a bonus for me that we get to talk about the national grasslands yeah. because I've, I've mentioned this, um, probably every other podcast. I think the na- our national grassland system are one of the most underappreciated forms of public land that that exist in the country and the fact that you're a biologist on one of them is just like a really sweet bonus for me but so i want to get to that but i want to start with with a little bit more about you um i know you live in oregon uh today are you a native um and and walk us through kind of where you grew up in your career path and how hunting and in biology came came to be a part of um the the you know the the person that monty greg is <laughs> yeah yeah I, it's it's interesting you know like i think um you know our oregon has changed a lot obviously in my lifetime and and so yeah i'm i'm a native i'm third generation oregonian um my great grandparents homesteaded um eastern oregon um you know in the late 1800s and and then, um, yeah, my, uh, my dad's side of the family, um, you know, kind of grew up in the Eastern part of the state and then they moved to central Oregon and, you know, I've, I've lived in central Oregon, um, most of, well, all of my life except for during, during college. And so it's been really cool, um, to live here when the communities were so small, just because, you know, most of my friends were hunters, um, fishermen, you know, so really, really, um, kind of grasp the use of public lands that surround the city or the towns here in central Oregon. So, you know, you, you have public lands right out your back door, you know, like literally you can drive five minutes and be on public land. And so Mm. it's pretty, pretty nice opportunity. The interesting thing for me is growing up hunting, most of it was primarily just big game hunting, you know, lots of deer and elk hunting, um, lots of fishing. And, and so just always had kind of that love of the outdoors and <clears throat> excuse me. And, uh, yeah, just had, um, a real interest in, in being outside and, and biology. So it's funny because I, I actually, my career path or, or, um, the career I chose wasn't truly, um, the direction I intended it to go. So I, I wanted to, I was an athlete also. And so I ran for a small university. And so I thought I wanted to be a biology teacher and a coach. So I get get out of high school and I head to the university and I start, you know, 
taking all these biology classes and then minoring in secondary education. So I want to be a high school teacher. And about halfway through the program, I was like, man, I do not see myself sitting in a classroom teaching biology. You know, there's, this is not going to work. And so luckily, um, Oregon State University has a really great wildlife and fisheries program. And it was only mm. like, you know, 40 miles down the road from the university I was going to. So after my sophomore year, I like, well, I'm going to have to give up my running scholarship and like all of this other stuff. And so just kind of switch gears and headed to OSU. And honestly, I was um, super bummed that I didn't start there. Like the pro mm. program is amazing. You know, the faculty is amazing and really just embraced everything they had to offer. I was, you know, just kind of, I just kind of ate it up. And, and uh, yeah, when I graduated, I was pretty lucky. I was a seasonal employee and uh, you know, I started with the forest service like the day after I graduated from high school. And so, wow. or excuse me, day after I graduated college. from college. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, just it, you know, and then, you know, I guess, you know, 25 years later, here I am, you know, I, I, I work seasonally, um, from, you know, year to year. Um, one of the things that really kind of anchored me into the agency though, was the partnership piece. Like I started doing the partnership work early on in my career. And so, although I wasn't a permanent employee, I was doing all these partner projects that were bringing in funding for my salary as well as um, stuff to get done on the ground. And so like mm. it just started connecting me from year to year in these temporary positions until I finally got a permanent job. And then, um, but it's interesting, like my intent was never to move back to central Oregon. My intent was to, you know, go out into the Intermountain West somewhere where you know, there were big game galore and lots of hunting opportunities, you know, and, and uh, it just never happened that way. Like I literally left OSU and just kind of worked kind of a horseshoe shape right back up central Oregon for different national forests. And, uh, you know, like I say, I'm still here. I think things happen for a reason, you know, and mm -hmm. I just wound up, you know, and I think life happens. You wind up getting married, having a family, you know, and you anchor into a place and you want, sure. you know, but there central Oregon is a great place, man. Like there's a, they're definitely a great place to raise a family. And like I said, public lands right out your, right out your back door. It's getting fairly populous now, but like, it's still um, a great place to live just because it allows you a really good central location to other parts of the state for whatever you want to do, you know? And for me, it's upland bird hunting. So well, that's it because that you took it exactly where I wanted to go. You mentioned growing up kind of an elk and big game hunter. And now, you know, you got a, a dog laying, a bird dog laying on the bed behind you. Um, you've, you work for, and I want to get into this in a little bit, Upland Game Bird Center of Excellence. Oh, yeah. Never heard of that. Yeah. I want to know about that. Yeah. But, but oh, at what point and what was the where, where did it change for you from mm. big game to upland birds? What was the catalyst for that? Well, it was, it was interesting. Like I had never really been exposed to bird dogs before. And I met a, a, a really good friend of mine from college. Um, you know, it's interesting when you go to college, you, you wind up becoming friends with, with people that are from your area. Like if you're going to college in your home state, like, and 
in Oregon and Washington are kind of interesting because they're they're divided by the Cascades. So you've got Eastern Oregon, you know, and Western Oregon. And so like a lot of us rural kids from Eastern Oregon, you know, you wind up finding each other, you know, like it's like uh, you, you become friends with these people that are like from places that you hunt or, you know, and so this good friend, uh. good friend of mine grew up in a town called Pendleton that's in Northeast Oregon. His grandpa had a big wheat farm up there, a big farming community, you know, they produce you know, tons and tons of wheat. And, uh, it's, so it's just really kind of rolling, um, Palouse and, or was historically rolling Palouse and, you know, converted to wheat, wheat ground. And, and, uh, we went up one weekend or yeah, one weekend for opening pheasant season. He invited me up, you know, as an adult, we were out of college and, and I had never done it before, you know, and, and, uh, I was like, yeah, sure. You know, let me see if I can borrow a shotgun, you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> we go and, and, you know, I, we, we're, we were both out of college, maybe a year, something like that. So, um, so I go up there and we go on this pheasant hunt and like, there's every breed of dog you can imagine with us, you know? And, mm. uh, I wound up hunting with the friend of theirs that had this little Brittany and this little Brittany, man, it's, you know, they're brushy ditches and, you know, the edge of these, um, wheat fields, you know, and man, this little Brittany was just a terror. Like she was so tough. And, uh, and those pheasants, you know, now I know like how hard they are to hunt with a pointer, right. You know, those things are track stars. And so like, so you get down to the edge, the end of a end of the cover, and she she could tell that they were running, you know. And then uh, you get down the edge of the cover where it opens up, and they stop, you know. And man, she um, it'd be interesting because she she'd almost like pin them between you and the edge of the cover, you know, to cause them, you know, and hammer down. You know? So she, yeah, to hold, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, and just like lock up and i just to see the dog do that and then uh and so it would force a rise right the bird have to fly straight up in the air and over you right and so it was just the coolest thing so you you shoot a couple of wild pheasants you know and then you know they'd go down or you cripple one and that dog was amazing at hunting dead birds like she or crippled birds she could like she, you, we'd never obviously, you know, that's a benefit of hunting with a dog. I know it so well now, but like, like, uh, we'd never found those birds if it wasn't for the, that dog. And sure, dude, it was like, like after that, it's like, uh, I, you know, you can hear how hyper I am, but like yeah. the hook was in, like, I was like, I got to get me a bird dog. We got to buy a house. Huh. We got to buy a house so I can <laughs> buy a dog, you know? <laughs> that's so, great it, so I, it was it was kind of that that was the moment you know and i really like britney's to this day i've never owned one but i think they're just really cool dogs i uh mm. great house dogs and and uh yeah just tough little mothers man like they they, they really are <laughs> so so what kind of bird dogs have you owned over time i've only had two like i have some friends that you know own multiple dogs and are always cycling through so their dogs are they're never yeah. dog poor if you will and uh yeah i just have one at a time it's all my family can handle from having a pointer in the house because they live in in the house with us so um i've only owned vigilas so i'm on my second one now and he's getting pretty old we we made it through a bird season this year, but he's 11. And so mm-hmm. his, his time is coming here. So I, uh, um, but yeah, they're a great breed. They're very sensitive. 
pretty easy to train, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you have to be pretty soft with them and stuff, you know, some, you know, they, but they're like, um, I'm a runner. So I, right. So like I told you, I ran in college and I think mm-hmm. that's why upland bird hunting and dog, you know, foot hunting with dogs, you know, appeals to me so much. Cause I, I tell people my fitness level, um, follows my dog's age. Like I'm always, yeah. always running them and running with them, you know, when they're super young and Vigilas are great runners, you know, great. Um, you know, they're not a, probably as big a runner. Uh, you know, I say this, but you know, somebody probably contradict me, you know, but like, you know, I don't think they're as big a runners as a German short hair, you know, English pointer or something like that. But for a foot, from a foot hunting perspective, a non-field trailer like myself, great, great dog. They get out there in open yeah. country when you can see them and, and, uh, um, you know, they'll change it up and check in a lot when you can't see them. So they just seem to hunt really well that way. So they're, they're known as the Velcro dog. Is that something oh, that, uh, is that fit? <laughs> it totally fits, dude. I didn't know. I'd never yeah. heard that before, but yeah, they're pretty needy little boogers. I think that's why, you know, I, I, uh, I have girls, you know, I have two daughters and them growing up. I think that's why they liked them so much is that like, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm not in a house or something, you know, they're laying on the kids or, you know, they're just great companions, but yeah, they're like, they're super needy. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. So, so you are, yeah, your titles, forest wildlife biologist, uh, region six of the U S forest service with the upland game bird center of excellence. I've never heard of the Upland Game Bird Center of Excellence. What is that? Well, that's funny. I don't like the title, to be honest with you, because it almost makes you sound like you're like this all-knowing individual for Upland <laughs> Game Birds, which, you know, that is definitely not me. But it, our centers of excellence are really um, oh, uh, specific to our region in that um, we have – what we've done is taken all the interest groups and kind of broken them down – and manage them between different biologists in our region. So, so for example, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, we have a center of excellence for that. And hmm. the individual actually sits on my forest and he coordinates a lot of the, it's like a being a liaison between the RMEF and the Forest Service. And so gotcha. he coordinates a lot of the RMEF work and projects and helps our district biologists apply to fund, you know, to grants and stuff like that. The Upland Gamer, you know, is a little different because the ebbs and flows of conservation organizations, right? So the Turkey Federation has always been a big partner for the agency. um, And we have a partnership. um, The Forest Service does one of the longest running, probably oldest partnership, the partnerships the Forest Service has in the country called Making Tracks. And, and it's, um, I sit on the making track steering committee. So I'm kind of that liaison as well for our region to these different conservation organizations. And, uh, gotcha. and so, so it's, it, although it sounds like I, you know, I'm like this <laughs> upland game bird expert. It's really, although I, I do spend a lot of time, um, with habitat management for upland game birds, I really am more of a conduit, if you will, to connecting our biologists with conservation organizations like the Rough Grouse Society, Quail Forever, Pheasants Forever, you know, trying to kind of be that liaison. And so, like, it's a very cool position or an opportunity because it allows me to do something that I'm passionate about outside of my normal nine to five. So my my day-to-day or my daily job is the forest biologist on the 
Ochico National Forest and Crooked River National Grassland. Um, and I, but I tell people I moonlight as the Upland Game Bird Center of Excellence. So I have to cover Oregon and Washington. And, and part of that, um, and I think she's been on your podcast, Michael Klein. Um, yep. She's the Upland Game Bird um, Program Manager for ODF, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. So we work together a lot. Like uh, she worked for the Turkey Federation prior to coming um, to ODFW. And so I knew her before. She's a great friend of mine as well. Super knowledgeable. Like uh, um, she's an awesome lady. And so, you know, I, you know, my relationship with her, you know, is kind of a direct line. Like if there's something going on um, habitat wise that, that our, you know, forests or biologists in the region are trying to get their hands around, whether it be, you know, quail, um, grouse, you know, forest grouse, um, turkeys, you know, I have that connection to her and, and just say, Hey, these, these are, this is what this forest is trying to do. Um, it could be partnership related. Um, it may not be, it may be something that, you know, the Upland Gamer, uh, program manager, the dollars that they generate through the stamp program, you know, can facilitate some help, things like that. But, uh, it's really cool. I mean, I, it, like I say, I'm a people person. So it like, it allows me to connect with a lot of folks, you know, and like talk about and help them solve problems. You know, if there's an issue, they habitat issue they have, and I've experienced it because typically I've like, I tell people I've test drove a lot of like, um, Oh, um, a lot of our, uh, uh conservation agreement type of, mm. um, processes, you know, trying to, you know, pull resources together to get something done on the ground. If we have a tool in the toolbox, uh, toolbox, I've usually, usually I've already tried it out. So like if somebody, mm. if I help somebody use that tool with a conservation partner and they're successful, my job's done. You know, it's, yeah. uh, so it's, it's pretty cool. Like, and I get like to hear a lot of different, um, habitat issues, you know, in a, in a sure. variety of habitats. Right. So like, I'm lucky. It's kind of cool because I I work on a grassland, so I kind of see that off forest side of things, you know. But not mm. not all biologists get that opportunity, you know. And so, like a sure. lot of mine is really the work I do with our our uh, biologists is really tied to forest forest habitats. But it looks it can look very different across the state, that's for sure. So I'll I'll echo your sentiment about uh, Michael Klein, um, and I'll point listeners. She was. She was part of the last episode we did in this series. Um, Michael talked to us about um, the mountain quail in Oregon. So if folks missed that one, definitely go back. I think it's only two episodes back. You can listen to Michael talk about uh, the largest North American, and I'm sorry, the largest quail species in the United States. There's actually some bigger species in Mexico, but Michael is a wealth of knowledge oh, and a man. super fun personality. Uh as I touched on, uh, Monty, you know, there's there's 14 national grasslands in the United States representing 4 million acres. And, and our listeners have heard me extol the virtues of the Fort Pier grasslands and the Cimarron National Grasslands and Buffalo Gap, you know, the ones in kind of just over the Missouri River from, you know, where I live, You're the ones that are within kind of an easy trip for hunting distance for me to get to. And I just think that they're so underappreciated as a, and, and not only from a bird hunter's perspective, but just, you know, we think about national forests and national parks, but I don't think we, as a general public, recognize the 
sheer beauty in the wildlife you know, like Noah's Ark of grassland species that that make up these national grasslands. And you, you're the first biologist I've had on um, who represents one of those, the Crooked River National Grassland, the only one, the only national grassland in the Pacific Northwest. And I, I tell you, looking at the photos on online, it's like I gotta get there. It looks, <laughs> it looks stunning. Tell, tell me your perspective about national grasslands well it's it's interesting because it's an interesting place for the forest service so the forest yeah. service i'm gonna give you a little history lesson if that's okay um so yeah. the so the forest service sits in the department of agriculture so you know historically the reason for that is because the forests are kind of seen as a crop you know so there's a commodity that we're producing and as a result there's revenue generated from that that goes back to the ground to do you know, to manage the forest, manage the public lands. Um, so if you think of it from that perspective and then having a national grassland, you're like, well, there's no forest. And so how does that work? You know, but there obviously mm. are resources associated with those. So cattle grazing, obviously, you know, there's a tremendous amount of recreation on our national grassland. So a lot of, you know, trails and, you know, you know, non-consumptive recreation. I don't know if people are familiar with that term, but like, uh, it's a politically correct way to say it's like a non-hunting type of sure. recreation. Bird watching. Yeah. 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 Something like that. So, so, you know, so that definitely draws revenue for our communities and whatnot. And you can see the, the stunning landscape, you know, of the grassland or the Crooked River National Grassland. And, and so it's, it really provides kind of some of that scenic opportunity that people are seeking and so, so definitely there's revenue generated from, um, from just tourism and central Oregon, honestly, is, is a tourism Mecca. Like there's, mm. there's a lot of people that are, that come here just because of the variety of, you know, public lands and, you know, forest or shrubland types that, um, you know, drink is, a little wine. Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, micro-brewed beer, like Bend is kind of like oh, that, sure. that kind of mecca for that as well. So, um, so, so being a biologist on the grassland and our grassland specifically, you know, public lands typically are those lands that we acquired because, you know, they were kind of abandoned. And so, so like, uh, the Crooked River National Grasslands were grassland were, was Homestead Act lands where people came there and they tried to grow dry land wheat. And it worked be for a while because it was, it was during a more wet, you know, climate regime. And so things grew and then here comes the dust bowl. Right. Mm. And so like all these people's land just dried up and they just essentially abandoned them. And so over time, all these homestead act parcels were just, just out there. And so the federal government, you know, acquired all of the, all the lands and, you know, turned it into a national grassland. And it's interesting too, in that, like, I think the grassland that, you know, that you reference in the Midwest, you know, looks very different from the Crooked River National Grassland because the ecosystem is really one of those shrub step ecosystems mm. and, you know, has, has bunch grass components, but like when you look at it, you know, there's, um, you know, Western juniper growing there, you know, entire stands of juniper. And so when you think grassland and you see kind of this arid ecosystem and these, 
you know, this really arid tree species kind of, you know, growing across mm-hmm. it, you're like kind of a head scratcher, like, wow, that doesn't really resemble a grassland much, you know? And so, yeah, it's interesting. that comes through. You're right on. Cause that comes through loud and clear on the website. When you look at photos, you know, comparing it to the, my visual memory of, you know, Fort Pier or the Cimarron, which are truly more grasslands, you know, the, the quintess, you know, where the buffalo roam, right? Right. Where, where when you look at the photos of the Crooked River, um, it it definitely doesn't look like that. It, no. it looks like, though, where, again, and I've never hunted valley quail, but it looks like you know, where you see the photography of and video in the films, uh, you know, where people hunt valley quail, that matches up pretty well to my visual <laughs> of the cro- Crooked River grasslands. Yeah. So that, that's got to be the connection, right? I mean, that's that's the habitat. For yeah, it. yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, gosh, you know, valley quail, it's an interesting species just because the variety of of uh, habitats they live in, you know, so that grassland habitat, um, and that Crooked River grassland is pretty cool because there's, you know, we have mountain quail on the Western side of it as well. And so, so hmm. two, two species of quail there. And, uh, and so, but like the, the terrain and the topography, you know, like you think about, <laughs> you could think about hunting flat land, you know, and like, there's a lot of, you know, buttes and hills and it's very broken terrain. So, um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely a lot of uh, diversity across that, across that grassland for sure. And, and it's really hemmed in by you know, quite a bit of private land as well. So um, it can be fragment. It's kind of fragmented in the northern portion of it, but there, you know, there's a big consolidated block of public lands. Um, can a hunter reasonably expect to hunt valley quail and, and mountain quail on the same walk? Or do you have to drive between two places to get uh, get because the habitats are a little bit different yeah you you could uh, you know bump into them in the same hunt but not likely it's um okay. you know there there's always you know you just often you know but and i say that because valley quail are so uh uh like they live in such diverse habitat that like there's always the chance that you could bump into some somewhere, Mm. you know, but like, uh, but if you're just going to go look, looking at habitat and try to, you know, you know, hunt valley quail, it's not likely you're going to get those two species in the same hunt on the grassland. You'd have to drive. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, um, let's talk about the name. And as a person that like full transparency, I've never, I've never seen, a valley quail or a California quail or a California valley quail. So how should I, should I reference them? Like my perception is if you live in California, you call them California quail. If you live outside of California, you call them valley quail. And I keep calling them California valley quail to appease everybody. What's right. I don't think that there's a wrong way to address them. Like if you say California quail, people are going to know like in, in Oregon, I don't even think we reference them as Valley or California just because other species of quail are, you know, fairly rare, like, you know, mm-hmm. mountain quail. Um, and Michael, 
probably talked about this, you know, the majority of the populations are in Western Oregon. And so Mm -hmm. like if you're in Eastern Oregon and you say you're going to go quail hunting, um, uh, you're, you know, 90% of the people know that you're going to go valley quail hunting. And so, but like, I think most folks here in Oregon and, uh, I think there's just rivalry with the state of California for one, but, uh, just refer to them as valley quail. So, um, so you can drop it however you'd like. I think it's uh, <laughs> just up to you. Yeah. So one of the things like when we at Quail Forever, when we um, review each issue of the Quail Forever Journal, we put them on the wall. Um, the every page on the wall, and the group circulates through and looks at the the spreads. And every photo, you know, if it's a Gamble's quail or a Valley quail, oh, you know, everybody yeah. gets really tight. You're like, okay, which one is this? <laughs> it, um, as a biologist, is there a, a really easy way for you to differentiate the two? You know what? It's that's a tough one for me, just because I haven't seen very many gam- gambles quail in the in the uh, in the field or in hand. Like, um, I've I've only got to see them, you know, obviously as mounted specimens, and mm. because I don't really hunt out of state that often for me, you know, just kind of comparing the two, um, like it just seems to be a differentiation in plumage for me. Like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of uh, an eyebrow, eyebrow raise, you know, and you look close, look like, God, I think that's a gambles quail. Like the, the plumage is a different color, you know, a little bit, you know, but they look a right. little, very, very similar. Yeah. And my perception is the, there's a little more crimson to the Valley quail um, but again, I'm no biologist. That's just looking at photography. Well, it's funny because like the times that I've seen mounted specimens and I'm like looking at them I'm like, man, is, is that a gamble's quail? And, um, uh, you know, it's, to me, it always seemed like the head coloring, like, uh, mm-hmm. like the crest on top of the head seemed to be like a, like more of a brown than, you know, valley quail or California quail are super great in in my mm. opinion i've got them living in my backyard like they wow yeah they like i was watching once on my fence post this morning thinking about our conversation today and they're really great like they blend in okay. with the sagebrush really well and uh so i think i don't know i'm like some another biologist could listen to this and be like ah that's not right you know but I don't know, that's what it seems like to me i don't know so all right we, we've touched that uh, we touched on the habitat you got them in your backyard <laughs> yeah. describe describe where they live well it's cool because i think the name you know valley quail kind of really you know kind of really resonates with the species in that um in eastern oregon um you know, they really, really are associated with kind of that riparian habitat, like, you know, mm. small drainages, lots of hardwood, um, you know, willow, alder, you know, really thick cover. Um, and it, in part, because if you think about Eastern Oregon, it's fairly arid, you know, there's, you know, we talked about the grassland being, you know, full of, you know, Western juniper, but like primarily non-forest, you know, um, non-forested lands in eastern oregon you know that shrub community is very arid and so like Mm. the places that um you will find quail are typically in those riparian interfaces with really good shrub cover because there's you know persistent water which they don't need in the fall um they really 
need it in the in the summer in the dry months you know and so so you've you've got really good cover there um from a you know predation perspective you know security um nesting as well and then like because it's a wet area you know the diversity of plant the plant community changes from mm. from um you know a very uh what do you call it like uh you know very arid um very few species of grasses and forbs to sure. you get into that riparian zone and then you know you've you've made it to the hinterland from a vegetation perspective you know you got like i said willow alder you know a variety of forbs and grasses um so it you know it just it's it's kind of what anchors them on the landscape. Gotcha. So uh, with a lot of um, our discussions about the different quail species, you know, you're already being consistent, you know, they're attracted to, you know, the riparian areas, the ditches, the washes, you know, that's true. That's true of gambles in the desert. It's true of scalies, you know, so there's a lot of consistency there. Can you draw similar parallels in terms of, their nesting season, how many eggs, um, you know, are, are they a, you know, kind of a May, June nester, like some of the other quail yeah. species? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it can happen earlier. I mean, I think, I think what throws them off if they, if they set up shop earlier is just really kind of like maybe a warmer, drier season, you know, when mm. things just warm up sooner, the rains may not come, you know, um, it kind of gets them, you know, kicked in the high gear from a nesting perspective, but yeah, for the, for the most part, um, you start seeing them, you know, March, you know, start pairing up and stuff, you know, and trucking around by May, June, you know, they're on nests by June, July, you see the broods up and moving around and stuff. And, and honestly, I feel like I'm spoiled because my neighborhood has just a lot of undeveloped open space surrounding it. And like, you know, that's kind of what keys me in, although they're, you know, urban birds, um, living off of people's bird feeders here in town or here in my neighborhood. Um, it's kind of true. I mean, like you can really kind of tell, um, kind of gauge what, when nesting is occurring just by the birds that live in our neighborhood here and stuff. But yeah. And if I recall correctly, like Merns and Bob whites tend to average about 11 eggs per nest, a little bit on the smaller side, whereas uh, Valley quail are more similar to gambles in that, they tend to have a little bit bigger clutches. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, you know, I, um, just looking at kind of the science and the averages, you know, I think 11 is the average for, for valley quail, but, but you're right. Like I think last year or yeah, last year was a really, really mild, um, spring, you know, cause you know, rainfall, really wet, cold springs can really impact, um, hatch mm -hmm. success, you know? And so like, um, or nest success. And so like, um, man, you could see lots of, um, you know, larger broods, you know, it's kind of cool when you, you know, you see, you know, the, the quail up and moving around after nesting season, all of a sudden it looks like the ground is moving. Cause like there's this mm -hmm. giant, giant brood moving along the ground. The little dudes are just, you know, you know, inch and a half. No, not quite that small, but like they're tiny, you know, it's like, it's crazy that they, that they can move around and they're so good at flying at such a young age. But, you know, those are adaptations that, keep them alive and around for sure so a lot of the quail species we've talked about through other podcasts where the the male so the hen will lay a clutch and the male will incubate and the hen will go have another clutch with another male is that true of um of 
a valley quail as well? Do they have multiple broods and does the male take a role in reproduction? No, I don't believe it's quite like that's really kind of a mountain quail type of, uh, you know, Michael probably talked about that. They're really killer because they're, um, um, you know, they have a really cool life cycle that right. you know, the, the female you know, double clutches, a male incubates one nest, a female incubates the other. You know, that's not quite the same for California quail in that like the female pretty much, you know, has a lion's share of, um, you know, the duties there. You know, the, gotcha. that's why that's why you see those photos of the sentinel, you know, the, the yep. male sitting on the post, you know, kind of watching out because the female's on the nest, you know, and and uh, warning calls and things like that. And of course, that's kind of his, his role with the broods when they're moving around and stuff too, you know? So, um, so yeah, it's, uh, I'm sure there's always, um, you know, variations in what happens, but like that's, you know, for the most part, pretty much how it works out. Yeah. And I'm assuming like most um, chicks or quail, when they, when they have broods, the chicks are eating insects oh. early on in their life. And that probably plays right into the, the wet areas as well, right? Yeah, that's cool because like a, a great, great point. And yeah, like most gallinaceous birds, you know, their poults are like eating insects right out the gate because it's such mm. a giant sh- source of protein. And so, you know, quail, quail poults follow follow. Um, true to that, you know, where insects play a really important role. The cool thing about riparian areas, and like I say, it's a great point that you bring up is that, you know, because it's so much more productive and the species and diversity of plant increases in those zones, those zones also um, produce tons more insects than just Mm -hmm. in the upland in that more dry terrestrial terrain. And, you know, from a forest service habitat perspective, I mean, that's really, um, kind of our role where we're, you know, really trying to do a better job of, you know, bringing back some of the hardwoods and bringing back that diversity of habitat. Because when you bring that back, the insect production just freaking goes off the charts. And so mm. like, it's pretty cool from, from an upland bird perspective, you know, whether it's turkeys, grouse or quail, like um, it just, it just plays through. And so you'll see us when we're doing a, you know, a riparian improvement project where we'll fence it, you know, sometimes with a seven foot tall fence all the way down the corridor. And it's really not just, okay, we need to keep the cows out of here, but it's like the other ungulates, you know, like mm-hmm. until we get this, until we get these hardwoods and this vegetation anchored back into this riparian zone, we're not going to let anything eat it until it's, it's got a good start going. You know, the cool thing mm-hmm. is that the birds can still get in and out of there. Um, sure. but, but the, but the bigger, bigger ungulate species, you know, we kind of keep them at bay for a while to get it, like I say, reestablished and then we'll take the fence down. But so it's, you're right on like, uh, yeah, like habitat, um, diversity means, you know, diversity of other insects and, and, uh, obviously other species as well. So. Interesting. Yeah. The very last podcast we did was on the concept of heterogeneity which oh, yeah. is right. So the, the diversity of not only species, yeah. but the diversity of structure. Mm-hmm. And that goes to why you're fencing it to keep those different plants growing and creating the structure to yeah. not only produce the insects, but create cover from, from avian predators and lots of different reasons. Well, it's, it's, that's totally true. And I think what I, as a habitat biologist, um, what I think folks, folks uh 
sometimes don't realize is that like these really cool, robust riparian zones, when you see them kind of in their glory and there's a variety of, of shrubs and age classes of shrubs and, and plant diversity, you know, when that's, um, you know, fire, especially on the east side of the state, plays a huge role in that. Like these are fire adapted ecosystems and, mm-hmm. and that historically, that structure and that spatial, spatial heterogeneity, excuse me, um, mm-hmm. really was controlled by a mosaic of fires on the landscape in a, you know, in a fire regime, you know. And so, so what winds up happening is that when you kind of hijack that process, it becomes, like you said, super homogenous and mm-hmm. single age. And so the hardwoods, you know, will all blink out about the same time. So it's important to like have these different age structures and um, of shrubs, you know, and plants on the landscape, and then really try to utilize, you know, tools that would continue to re- regenerate um, that plant structure over time. So like, it's, it's unfortunate, you know, that, you know, it may have been our favorite quail hunting spot, you know, from 1997 to 2005, but the dang right. floor service came in there and they burned it all up, you know, you know, mm-hmm. prescribed fire, you know, and you're just like, sorry, dudes, but like, you know, we're going to do the best we can to make it even better. You know, we just needed to regenerate right. that, you know, and, uh, and so really kind of that, um, uh, adaptive management and really, really creating, um, Oh, you know, these fire ret- recreating these fire return intervals on the landscape. And it's just not, it's, it's a dynamic landscape. Like there's, you know, it's constantly changing over time, you know? And so it's, uh, people just need to keep it in mind. Yeah. Yeah. That was going to be my question too, because the perception is boy, fire can just get away in the West. Right. But at the mm-hmm. same time, it's the probably, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but my expectation is probably the best habitat management tool that you have as a biologist is prescribed fire. So how do you balance that in the Western United States? Yeah. I mean, like, I think that's, you know, I wish I had, uh, you know, uh, like a, you know, one answer to that question, you know, it's like, Mm. it's, it's, it's so there's the variety of habitats across the West is, you know, is huge. And Mm -hmm. like the, the fire regimes change significantly, you know, across, you know, these landscapes. So fire regimes, you know, from a, I don't know, from a forest perspective is like, you know, if you're in a ponderosa pine community, it's um, high frequency, low intensity, you know, historically, Mm. like the fire return intervals, like every five to seven years, and the intensity was low, they're very fire adapted species, really thick bark. And so the historically, the fires just kind of skunked around. But like, if you think about it, you know, from a grassland perspective, and, and really, the issues we're having with Western juniper right now, because they're, although they're native, they're invasive in that, like, you know, they, they historically were fire kept them at bay and, and they kind of were, you know, scattered across some more of the rockier country. And as we started suppressing fire, they grew down into more productive areas that were historically shrub grassland or shrub, shrub bunch grass areas. And so like, the Crooked River National Grassland, that's one of the things that we're annually and constantly dealing with is, you know, thinning junipers, um, 
you know, trying to get that fire regime back into check again and get more of the shrub bunch grass ecosystem reestablished. But, right. but, but like, it's a, it's a dance because you think about the grassland in that, that we acquired is that like, they tried to dry land wheat farm that. So they put the plow to that baby. Right. And so they're like, mm-hmm. okay, now how do we get these? We've got all these cultivars that are growing crazy out there, you know, that do provide some habitat, but you're really trying to reestablish kind of some of this native vegetation back in the mm-hmm. land and, and they're not as good a, as a competitor, you know? So, so it's like really, it's a kind of a dance, you know, like if you burn right. something, you may not get the result you wanted because of the non-native species that are associated with it. So for us, it's like looking at, um, the site potential of the landscape, you know, is it highly productive? You know, if it's highly productive, we could likely get some natives reestablished here. If it's moderate to low productivity, um, some of these other species that are undesirable, we may never get the natives to outcompete these. And so if we burn it, um, we may just make things worse. And so these are all conscious decisions that we have to make on a very large landscape, man. So like that whole fire good, fire bad thing across the landscape, the size of the West, that gives you some perspective. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. <laughs> yeah. I hope, yeah, they, I hope that describes it. You know, I like, I like that's just it's probably, like, it's probably your single biggest challenge, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. I think it's, think about this fires we had in the West this year, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of big forest fires and in the scale, I, I think about our, our forests and grassland, grasslands as biomass producing machines. Like, remember I said that, you know, they're very dynamic they're constantly changing, but they're very productive, you know? And so fire is a tool that we, um, um, that we have at our fingertips, but we also just missed all of these, uh, mm. historic fire cycles, right? Like, like we kind of hijacked the fire regime, stopped it from occurring and the biomass started growing. Right. right. And so, so that's fuel buildup, things like that. But we're, you know, we're, and we're trying to deal with that from a management perspective. But the landscape scale that we're dealing with that at, you know, you throw on, you know, listed species or species of concern that were, you know, they're mm. across those landscapes as well. And some limitations on just, you know, fuels treatments that we may have just because we're, you know, the impacts that could occur. Like it's, it's complex. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to circle back real quick. I'm anxious to get into the hunting conversation, but I, I, I want to, we'll finish off the biology. Um, we talked a lot about how the, the young birds are eating insects. And my assumption is the, the adults are eating insects in the spring and through mm-hmm. the summer months, but that probably changes as you get into fall and winter. What do, what do valley quail eat after they transition out of insects. Well, I think you got to think about, um, for one, you know, from, a from a, um, plant product production perspective in that, you know, you, you go through the spring, yeah, insects, you know, are hard, high part of their diet. You go through the spring when things are still green. So lots of forbs, you know, lots of mm. legumes, you know, there's a big consumption of that type of, um, vegetation and then and then as the plants senesce you know the grass seed sets and they start to drop and so like the diet just kind of continues to shift into more seed you know once you get into the 
to the uh, late fall. Now we, although I've not seen them consume a ton of it, you know, we have, you know, annual grasses that, um, you know, green back up again, that, that provides some, some um, nutrients as well. And so there's a little bit of that, but like um, highly, you know, they, their diets really shift to, you know, um, more amounts of, of uh, seeds, things like that later in the year. Um, fruit as well. I mean, like, I think mm. that, you know, fruiting plants in some of the areas that, that um, quail, valley quail occupy that are, you know, way more productive. So Western Oregon, you know, I've spoke to Eastern Oregon a lot. Western Oregon, you know, has a way more lush vegetation just because the rainfall and precip zone is so much higher there. And so valley quail, um, you know, with, with a more, more robust vegetation, you know, they have, you know, more opportunities at, at eating fruits from fruiting plants here than they do on the east side of the Cascade. So, so forgive my ignorance. <laughs> when you say fruits, I'm thinking grapes and apples. Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. Which is <laughs> not quite like that, but yeah. No. So, so like, I think, you know, manzanita, you know, they, it produces mm. a berry, you know, some of these shrubs, you know, um, mm -hmm. there's, um, some non-native, uh, fruits that occur in Western Oregon that don't occur here, but like, you know, you know, small berry producing plants. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you, you've talked about how the, the Crooked River National Grassland sort of the catalyst for that was the wheat farming. Um, I'm assuming there's still some wheat still around that area. Do, do Valley quail associate to the the wheat agriculture and do they eat some of the seeds or is that disconnected yeah it's it's kind of disconnected i mean like i i think when i say wheat people think about like um you know uh these really robust seed heads from you know wheat montana yeah yep. yeah it's not like that at all it's uh okay you know primarily crested wheat grass is what was the residual grass you know wheat grass that occurs in the grassland and i think the valley quail although they probably consume, you know, a fair amount of the seed, you know, they're kind of that, you know, edge habitat for, for birds, you know, mm. for gallinaceous or, you know, gallinaceous birds is kind of key, you know, they, they like that edge and, you know, it's, you know, from our, the Crooked River grassland perspective, they'll, you know, they're follow right along the edge of the riparian zone. So they okay. don't, if there's good shrub cover, you know, you'll see them go up into the drier terrestrial habitat a lot more. Um, but if there's not good shrub cover, they're hanging out closer to the, to the valley bottom where there is better cover. So it's, you've got a lot of, you know, raptors and things like that, that, you know, prey on them, not to mention, you know, you know, the miso carnivores that are, you know, go after them to a certain mm. degree as well. So, yeah. so, so you're leading me to the hunting questions about where to find them. But before the last question on the biology is, you know, what's the, the limiting factor when it comes to, to weather for them? Is it, you know, is it a, a wet spring? Is it, do you suffer from a severe winter have an impact on them or is it, um, or is it something different? You know, I had this conversation. It's funny that you asked me this because I had this conversation with, with Dave Badeau. He, he was, I don't know if you know the name, but like great guy, um, very knowledgeable. It's, he was Michael's predecessor. He was the ODFW um, Upland Game Bird Program Manager, you know, a good friend of mine. And, you know, we were talking about that, like um, nest su nesting success. Like, 
it can be super variable from year to year, especially for as erratic as our, um, or how different, I guess I should say, not erratic, but how different um, our um, springs are from year to year. So mm. you could have a really great, um, you could have really great um, nest success because you had a warm, dry spring, and then, you know, no rains ever develop. And so you go into a drought in the summertime and there's no water around for them at all. And you could lose a bunch of that success just based on the lack of, lack of water. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's like, I, my conversation with, was with him was that like, it's crazy. We have any quail to hunt, you know, or mm. for upland birds that live in these area communities in general, like you think of how many factors factor into success. Like, like you have, several droughts in a row that that um kind of absorb your you know water supply and there's no mm. water for the birds you know that can be major impact like you, you know like you have a really wet spring multiple springs in a row and they succumb to that to that um to the wet mm. and the cold you know and so it's like man it is like a thread in the needle with quail numbers you know it's like um but i think that's those are all um, uh, reasons that these quail have like specific adaptations, you know, things like that, you know, you know, big clutch size, you know, sure, um, sure. double clutchers, triple clutchers sometimes, you know, just based on what happens to the nest, you know? Yeah. And so they have adaptations that help you get through that. So, so I, you know, personally, I think um, I used to think that the spring was the bigger issue, but having been through a few droughts and then kind of seeing what's happened to quail populations, I'm like, man, it's like, it's a crapshoot. I, you know, I can't really say one way or the other, which is the bigger impact, you know? So, well, you, you've led me to believe on a couple of different points when it comes to hunting them. Uh, it, it's going to be similar to most of the Western quail species. In other words, find the wettest areas, the washes, the riparian areas along streams and rivers. And that's where you're going to find valley quail. Uh, is my assumption correct? It is correct. I think the only outlier I would say is that, and I don't know if folks, I, you would, I would have assumed John Sherman would have mentioned this, but like, you know, we have augmented the riparian habitat with other water sources, man-made developments, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, there's a variety of guzzlers scattered across this kind of country. And I guess I would say um, if they, you know, are, are tuned into some of these water supplies, that just helps the distribution of the critter a little bit, you know, where, where instead of being tied to their riparian zone um, fully, you know, if there's enough sagebrush or bitterbrush cover, um, shrub cover in general, you know, between these areas and, and, uh, and specifically around those guzzlers, those man-made water developments, you know, I've hunted quail from, from those places as well. And, mm. uh, they, and that's been something that, you know, we've leaned into really hard in some of these more arid environments and that like, you know, we have an adopt a guzzler program that ODFW runs here and the hunters, you know, not just upland bird hunters, but the big game hunters, they help maintain those and make sure they're functioning. Um, and we've put, you know, cameras up on these things just to monitor to see what kind of use they're getting. And, you know, just like what you'd expect late in the summertime, you know, 
if there's available water, the quail will find it. You know, right. So it's pretty Wait, cool. A, a, any film or hunting television show that I've ever watched um, that's focused on valley quail, it's always these massive covey flushes. Um, and you've alluded to this a couple of times too. Uh, is that commonplace? Where, or I guess, let me rephrase that. What is the common covey size of a flush when you're hunting them in the fall? Mm. It's it's you know it's highly variable. I wish I'd say well, you know, twenty five birds every time. You know, um, I wish I could say that, but I can't. Like, okay. um, it just it just depends. It depends on how much cover is there. Like, if it's mm. really good habitat, you can have really big covey flushes like that. Um, but for the most part, you know, what I find are like these groups of you know five to ten birds, and okay. and uh, you know not super massive. I mean, I have put big groups up like that um in the past but like uh you know it's been you know in my experience and and honestly because of where i hunt you know i'm hunting not just quail you know because of the landscape like you know i'm hunting multiple you know multiple species sometimes at the same time you know i'm hunting chuckers huns and quail all in the same day so gotcha. um yeah so it's uh you know it can it it can depend i personally think and um, you know, hunting behind a pointer, you know, quail are tough to hunt with a pointer, not because they don't hold be, because they don't put down a ton of scent and mm. like having hunted a variety of other birds. I think it's, I think, you know, and this is just me hunting the breed that I hunt. Um, they struggle, um, once the groups are broke up, like, uh, mm. if you're, if you, you know, you get a point on a big covey of birds, and they flush and you kind of go after them, you know, and you're hunting singles and doubles, you know, um, it's hard for a pointer just because they're small birds. And, mm. you know, I, I like to hunt in the fall once the precip has come because they put down more scent. Like if it's sure. dry, it's friggin' tough on, you know, people know this mm. is tough on, tough on a dog. So, um, I, uh, you know, you can get frustrated with your dog when, you know, he's pointing this bird, like, you know, a foot away and, uh, you know, you don't want him to bump him, you know, but he can't smell him until he gets that close to him, you know, or the, you know, if things aren't just right. So it's kind of fun. So, so tell me about a day bird hunting in Oregon. So you got, you mentioned huns, chuckers, valley quail. Oh. Um, are you, when you set out, do you, and your dog goes on point, do you know which species it's going to be or is it a crapshoot? When you leave your truck, are you out for the entirety of the day or are you moving around from spot to spot to spot? Like what's a day like in Oregon? Yeah. Bird hunting? yeah. Well, it depends. Like it really depends. So like if you're just wanting to focus on quail, it's not typically setting out for just the day and just being out in the field for the entire day. It's, it's driving from site to site. So you're going from drainage to drainage, um, you know, and you're obviously, I, you know, hunters are great biologists because they know what the habitat looks like, right? You know, right. you you know where to go, what your eye keys in on, things like that. And so it's typically these really great riparian corridors and they're long and linear, right? Mm -hmm. And and so finding those places that have the best habitat and, and uh, I think once you kind of get that dialed in, you know, it's hard to, you know, there's always this, these exploratory missions. I call them. I always like to find new hunt, 
uh, ground to hunt, but like, you know, you tend to go back to the same spots time and time again. But so, so if you're just, just going to hunt quail, then yeah, you're moving from spot to spot and, and, uh, and you're usually driving, you know, here and there, um, from a, from a multiple species perspective, like if I've got places that I go, that I go chucker hunting and, you know, there are places that you get on the chuckers and I leave the, leave the car for the day, you know, go, mm-hmm. go, go, you know, get a few chuckers, you go through kind of a swale that, you know, has some huns in it. And then you cross the drainage and when you're in the drainage, your dog points some quail, you know, and, uh, you come up out of it and go up, up, up on top of a rim and you're back in the chucker ground again, you know, mm. you drop down and now you're in another valley and, you know, your dog points some more quail again, you know, it's like, it's kind of one of those, like there's a spot, I hunt the breaks of the John Day River a lot and uh, it's very broken. And mm. I, you know, honestly, I, that's, I think why upland, this kind of upland bird hunting appeals to me so much. So I'm a runner. I'm usually, I usually stay pretty fit from season to season because I'm exercising my dog and usually I'm training for an event or something like that too. And, and so it, it's, uh, you know, for me that just the physical, uh, uh, activity of, you know, I think, uh, from, from my first dog to the dog I have now, like the GPS technology for me almost feels like <laughs> cheating, cheating where yeah. I like, uh, my, I started hunting a dog without that, you know, so that meant I'd had to hike at a really, you know, fast pace and kind of keep the dog as good as I possibly could in eyesight, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so it's like one of those where like that kind of broken terrain, um, lots of, it keeps a lot of people away, you know? Yeah. And so I'm going places where like, I never see other shotgun shells sometimes, you know, where I've actually spent worn the boot leather off to actually get to where it's starting to get good, you know? Yeah. And, uh, it sounds like, it sounds like there's an awful lot of public land to do this as well in Oregon. It's pretty amazing. I mean, I think I feel, you know, honestly, we often take it for granted and, and that's the appeal, you know, talking to, you know, biologists and hunters I know on the, you know, on, in the Southeast and the East, you know, and that like, you know, there's a lot of, um, it's hard for folks to find ground they can access and hunt consistently. You know, a mm. lot of people buy hunting rights, you know, and, and, or the public lands or, you know, they, they're just, you know, there's just a lot of use going on there, you know, things like that. Um, I think in the West, you know, that's what appeals to people the most, you know, is that like, um, you know, and it's obviously, you know, not every square inch of ground is quail habitat, right? Mm-hmm. So, so other people figure it out too, you know, so they're, you know, it's not like it's, it's everywhere, you know? Um, sure. So, so, you know, that's the secret part of being a hunter, you know, it's like, yeah, you don't code with just everybody. You know? <laughs> or do you get on those quail, you know, well, Eastern Oregon, you know, yeah. kind of as close as close to it as i'm gonna tell you you know something like that so So, do you think a so a bob white quail hunter or a pheasant hunter from from uh, the midwest could a person travel to to eastern oregon and figure out valley quail or is it going to take a few trips um no i think they can i mean like honestly early in my career with my first dog and when i met john sherman you know we we were, you know, in that era, I had actually taken, um, some Bob white quail guys from Tallahassee 
mm. on a chucker chucker slash coil hunt in Eastern Oregon. And it was interesting. I mean, like those are probably some of the steepest hills they've ever hiked in their life. You know, we had to cross a river, wade a river to get to um, some of the ground that we were going to hunt, you know, and, and there were a couple guys that didn't go with us. There were, there was my, well, what I mean by that, there were, there was, you know, five of us total and three of us left and hunted the more difficult ground to hunt. The other two are like, I'm not going there. And they just stay, stayed close to the rigs and they still got quail, but, um, um, it was interesting. Like their dogs, like, uh, they, I don't, I don't know if you, um, there's some very, very famous quail biologists in the country. Bill Palmer is sure. one of those guys. He's, he's he, been on he, the podcast. He's a, he's a super intelligent dude. And like, I took him on a chucker hunt one year, they drove out him and another biologist. And, and, uh, so the following year we, they, Bill didn't come out, but the other individual, um, Ed Epps came out and, uh, and his dad and his son. And so it was that group of people. This, this was years ago, but, um, but like they're one of their dogs, they have really killer pointers. And, uh, one, one of their dogs had never seen moving water and we had to cross that river and he wouldn't swim like the, oh, wow. the, they had to go back and get him to cross the river. You know, my dog was, had already crossed the river and was on point, you know, and like they, uh, but, uh, um, yeah, Bill, Bill's a, you know, an amazing biologist and super knowledgeable. He full of questions too, because they're so specific to, you know, his research so specific to Bob White, you know, he's asking right. all these questions about like, how many quail can you produce on, you know, and all this stuff is like, oh man, I like, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, it's not like, <laughs> it's not like that out here, you know, it's not, it's not as continuous as the ground that you look at, you know, sure. it's uh, very different. So, yeah. So I always ask as, as we start to, to wrap up, I always ask about um, how your favorite uh, preparation for eating this specific quail are. So, um, and I love when it comes out, like there's a, a natural geographic cultural connection to them. Is there anything unique to the way you create, you, you prepare valley quail when, as an or, a guy in Oregon? Well, I'd have to say culturally, it's kind of funny because you hit the nail on the head with me. Like, um, I'm half Hispanic. And so mm. I really like Mexican food and um, my family does too. So um, we've made uh, quail tamales before. We've mm. made um, quail fajitas, um, you know, any of the classic, you know, quail tacos. I mean, like anything that you can, you know, I, it's just such a great table fare too i mean like obviously uh um quail alfredo is pretty Mm. decent too um but yeah like i don't know i i don't think i have a a favorite i um i really i just you know it's like i say i think that um you know you can't go wrong with however you cook it you know uh, or prepare it i should say so what um what have we missed? What have we missed talking about? Anything that that uh, you want listeners to think about or remember related to Valley Quail? You know, I don't. I don't. I hope. I hope this was technical enough. I I was reading the script on your podcast, and I was like, "Yeah, they want a quail expert." I was like, "Gosh, that is not me." You know, <laughs> I'm just like, I'm "No, this is that, I'm this is this wonderful." Intri- 
<laughs> I was hoping this is uh, keeps the listener engaged and can kind of get a taste of what it's like in our our part of the world. Um, like I, I uh, like I say, I haven't hunted um, quail in many other states. You know, it's primarily just been Oregon, and uh, so I have a very very narrow view of of quail hunting, valley quail hunting specifically. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a cool state, and I think from an upland bird perspective, you know, you know, I referenced Bill Palmer coming out, you know, they, they got to hunt a lot of species, upland bird species while they were here, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, I have never seen so many pointers in the back of a truck before in my life. Either. <laughs> that was, that was pretty cool. Yeah. So, um, really, really cool. So the state obviously does have a, a great variety of upland bird opportunities, you know, everything from pheasants, huns, you know, um, so mountain quail, valley quail, it's, it's a pretty, pretty great place. And the birthplace of uh, pheasants in the United States, even. Really? I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, Judge Owen Denny, uh, who was the U.S. ambassador to China in the late 1800s, wow. brought, brought pheasants back in the very first place was Willamette Valley um, yeah. in the uh, um, and that's that's where they took off from. That so that's wow. the U.S. I think it's uh, eighteen ninety two something in that neighborhood. Jeez, that's impressive history, man! Wow, yeah. look at you. Know more about my state than I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one of those things when you're a peasant guy, you should know where they were born, right? <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Ah, well, no, I, I can't think of anything else, man, unless you have other questions for me. I, uh, I appreciate the time. No, this, I appreciate your time, Monty. I've, I've loved, I, you know, the, the only thing that I wish is this conversation should have happened after the of day of you and I in the field hunting together. Cause I, I love your personality and the, the, the film or, and the photography of the Crooked River National Grasslands just it makes me want to go there and I'd love yeah. to spend a, a day in the field and then have this firsthand conversation yeah. about hunting valley quail. So so there might be a second podcast in your future. <laughs> that sounds great. If you're willing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that sounds good. I uh it'd be cool. I mean like I, I wish my dog was younger, but you know, bring your dog if you ever want to come out and and uh do some hunting we'll uh we'll uh we definitely can make that happen and then like you say do a podcast at the same time and and then uh you know you can share share some of your your um photos um with the rest of the quail guys and stuff and show them what it's like so yeah well it's been a really really fun conversation thanks for sharing your time and your expertise with our audience yeah you're welcome yeah Keep me in keep me in mind on a bird hunt in the future. Very good. All right, folks. That is Monty Gregg, a biologist with the US Forest Service in Oregon. Uh, just a wealth of knowledge and a tremendously fun guy. Um, if if you're not already a member of Quail Forever or Pheasants Forever, um, this is your reminder. Get involved for the, the mission of conservation. We need your voice to be uh, in support of our habitat mission and uh, support all of our species of uh, upland game birds, pheasants, bobwhites, and of course, valley quail. 
I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening, folks.